a Sunday night meeting of SF Insight. Um, can you all hear me? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me okay. Great, thank you. Um, we'll begin with the meditation, then we'll have a talk, and then we'll have time for discussion, questions, comments. Please set up your posture so you're sitting upright. Very helpful to be on your sits bones, if at all possible. Even in the chair, I have to shift my position a little to get on my sits bones. I kind of tuck my rear end into the base of the chair, where the bottom of the chair meets the back of the chair. And, uh, and then I'm not actually putting my back on the back of the chair, it's just my rear end and letting that support me in that uprightness. And even the posture, taking the posture, finding the posture that feels right to you, feels as upright as possible and also as relaxed as possible, is engaging in the first foundation of mindfulness, being mindful of the body. And it can be very helpful to let your eyes close, letting the attention rest in the body so we establish on an embodied awareness. beginning to be mindful of the body by feeling it or sensing it or knowing it directly. Being aware of the aliveness that's sitting here. And of course, there are many different uh, components you might be aware of as you sense, feel, uh, become mindful of the body. You might be aware of the temperature of the body or the proprio, 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 no, the wrong word the overall sense of the shape of the body, proprioceptive, that's the word I want, the proprioceptive shape of the body that you feel. We 
Or you might be aware of where the body's touching something, the pressure of your rear end on the cushion or bench or chair. or whatever your hands may be touching. And of course, many of us are aware of the movement of the body. Even as we sit still, the body continues to move. Some people are aware of the pulsing of the body. Some people are aware of the movement created by our life's breath. The very simple movements that happen in the torso with the uh, inhalation and exhalation of each breath. The body and the breath is a very skillful way to begin to calm, collect, center the awareness here in an embodied way that's also characterized by the impermanent nature of each breath. Each breath is actually brand new. And as we become more sensitive, more intimate with the body breathing, you can start to notice the various different nuances of this newness of this breath. And then the next breath. And it's very skillful to give yourself to the mindfulness of the body breathing. Giving yourself to this very, very, very simple act of being aware of the body breathing all on its own. You don't have to change the breath or fix the breath. It doesn't have to be long or short or rough or smooth, however it is. What we're giving ourselves to is the mindfulness, body fullness of the breath, of the aliveness that sits here breathing 
and staying very close to the body breathing or the breath. Brings a sense of centeredness, calm, collectedness, peace. And you don't have to stop the other components of life that happen all on their own. Thoughts, feelings, sounds, smells, tastes, touch. Just let them be in the background of your awareness. Just staying with the very simple aliveness that's sitting here breathing to develop some samadhi, some collectedness or concentration. And you have two basic options for the meditation. It's fine to stay with the body and the breathing for the whole practice. Very skillful way to become mindful and centered. Or the other option, also very skillful, is if you're feeling composed and collected you can open the space of awareness and simply be aware of whatever is predominant, whatever arises in the field of awareness, whether it be thoughts or feelings or sounds, being mindful of what's here, not 
enchanted by what's here or not mesmerized by our thoughts or simply uh, engulfed in our feelings, but aware of them. Watching how they appear and disappear or they appear for a while and then fade and they do it all on their own. Even if you decide not to think, often thoughts happen. Or not to have a feeling, the feelings happen on their own. And we want to be aware of this. We want to be mindful of the various processes of being alive. Whether it's the body and the breathing or the various sensations of the body and then the thoughts or feelings or moods that may appear and disappear as we relax here in a very aware way. Cultivating an embodied awareness Staying very present, very aware, moment by moment by moment.
<clears throat> so I want to make a couple brief announcements. I just want to remind people that we have a new class every week on Mondays from 12 to 1 and that uh, please check it out or tell people about it, let people know. Um, and the four different teachers are teaching each week. Nina Gold is teaching and Eileen Spillane and Syra, I'm forgetting Smith and Raul Corona. I don't know his last name. What's his name, Nina? Raul? Raul Coronado. Coronado, thank you. And so the four of them will share the teaching for that class and uh, yeah, check it out. I mean, it's already building up in numbers of people coming and we're happy to see that. We just had our first month of that class. And what else did I wanna say? Oh, I wanted just to mention that I have a couple retreats at Spirit Rock uh, in March. Uh, there's a retreat, um, the, the March month long is uh, only gonna be 12 days long this month. It's a very short month for March meeting. As a, as a Zoom uh, meeting, it got the month March long got shortened. And so please check it out if you want to retreat. Really, really good, good retreat, good team. Uh, and uh, let's see who, what else. And then the second retreat I have is Maranasati retreat. And that'll be uh, later in March. Maranasati is mindfulness of death. It's a short retreat, I think five days and um, powerful. And uh, given that you all may die someday, it's a very helpful retreat to check out because the Buddhist teachings are so supportive for staying awake and being real about life and death. So yeah, so that's a couple retreats. And, um, <clears throat> and let's see, here's what I wanna talk about tonight. I wanna to talk about black history. I have different titles for the talk tonight. I, I think I sent out the one that said black history, our history. Um, and somebody said to me, oh, you should call it Black History, American History. That's also an okay title, but, but we are America, so I think it is our history. And also, um, I also had the illuminating uh, uh, Dharma of Black History, the illuminating Dharma of Black History. And, um, and Really, I thought we would talk about it and reflect together about what it means to celebrate or honor or respect Black history as part of our life, who, whoever we are. And most of the people here are not Black that I can see. Um, and so it's an, an interesting question. What does it mean that it's our history? And so I looked up the word history, which comes from the Greek originally. Uh, historia means it's about finding out or narrative. And the word histor means learned or wise person. And so one who has history or history becomes wise. 
And there's something wise about studying our collective history and to acknowledge and recognize and salute the different flavors of history that have come down to all of us uh, who live in this world, because we all share the history in different ways. Um, and so as I was reflecting about what to talk about, I thought about who, what are we celebrating or honoring, honoring or commemorating? And I thought about the people we're honoring who've been part of that history and the community and the culture that has experienced that history. Um, and, and I thought a lot about what it means to me personally. And I thought about my own history, my, my own, it's an odd way to say it, black history, meaning my own history of my experience of being black, even though I'm not black, right? Or being in a world of black history. And of course, we, that world of black history is, goes on to today, right? Because I mean, even in the last 10 years, we've had the first black president, which totally made history. And now the first, you know, woman vice president who's both South Asian and black, right? And it just totally changed the history, both for uh, all of us. I mean, when I was growing up, the idea there would be a black president was a little beyond my ability to conceive of as a young man, as a boy and young man. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's great how history starts to reveal the truth of the beauty of people and the intelligence of people and the magic of people. All, and I'm talking about all people, I'm talking bigger than black history, but part of what having us reflect on history is we get to learn more about who we are collectively as human beings. And most people here know this, many of you know this, right? I grew up in Detroit. And so I had a lot of relationship with black people as a, as a boy growing up, my first best friend, which I think they do BFF now, is that what they say about best friends? Best, best friend forever was a, uh, you know, was a young black kid like me, you know, and, and we didn't even think about that at that time because partly because we were too young to know so much about the difference and Detroit was much more um, unsegregated at that point when I grew up in Detroit. And uh, really, as I started thinking about the people that I knew and, and this boy, Freddie, of course, was the first person because I couldn't have been more than four or five. And I remember being friends with him and what a good kid he was. And I remember my bike got, uh, uh, got stolen and he helped me look for it. We went looking together, meaning I was on the handlebars of his bike and he was riding. So we were looking to try and find the bike and uh, barely knew what we were doing, but, but the good intention of people. And then all these other people who've impacted my life who were black for me are part of my black history. Right? And I could read you all these names that would mean nothing to you, but are people who I cared about who touched me 
or or help illuminate reality for me. And uh, and of course, even now, the same is true. I just I just started writing down the name of people uh, like Tuere or, or Victoria or or Dara or yeah, and, you know, and just the people who touch me and and are friends of my colleagues of mine, both. You know, and so, and so it's, and of course, I'm not suggesting your experience of Black history should be like my experience, that each of us will have our unique experience of Black history and to start to explore it and look and see how has it touched you or not touched you? And in what ways has it impacted you or not impacted you? Right? And so, because collectively, we're all here together. Whatever we think, whatever our fantasy is about reality, all human beings are here together. Whatever tradition you're from, if you're Irish, or if you're Jewish, or if you're Black, or if you're whatever you might be, German, or if you're, if you're English, or if you're Swiss, or if you're uh, from Japanese origin or China or, or, you know, Thailand or whatever it might be, or if you're from, you know, Saudi Arabia or you're from, there's all history that comes with that. And there's a history we generally know about where we've been or where our people have been. And as we start to live in the world that we see is, so small actually and of course COVID-19 has taught us so much about how small the world is how tiny it is how how an illness in one place in the world now has is an illness in the whole world and we all have to live with it and deal with it because we live in a collective reality and so that collectivity is important for us to be aware of and reflect on and see what, how does it impact us and what do we learn from it? Remember one of the ways the Buddha talked about awakening was about understanding. And that, so we always wanna see what do we understand about our lineage and our collective lineage and the different flavors of lineage that come through different countries and cultures and places and peoples and tribes. And so as I was reflecting, thinking about Black history, and this being Black History Month, and there's a great, you know, I, I like to watch sports. So I still watch the Warriors, even though they're horrible these days. Um, uh, but Steph Curry is still amazing, like beyond belief. You should check him out if you haven't seen him lately. He's better than ever. And, uh, and uh, actually was Steph Curry was doing a thing about Black History Month, some kind of NBA commercial supporting Black History Month. And he had the names of each month. And he said, January, that's Black History Month. February, that's Black History Month. And he was saying, really, all of reality is part of Black history as he went through every month, not just February is Black History Month, even though technically that's when it's, you know, prescribed. 
And so in Buddhism, what does it mean to look at black history or to examine black history and our relationship to black history? And of course, uh, the first answer, which basically always comes with Buddhism, oh, it's about suffering and the end of suffering. It's about seeing the suffering that comes with different traditions, different lineages, different races, different religions, different uh, countries, different cultures. And there's certain kind of prejudice that uh, almost all of those deal with, you know, and of course, in addition to gender and sexuality and age and economics, right? But, but right now, just looking at the suffering that comes and what it means to end that suffering or the potential for that suffering ending and how to live and work with that suffering, which at least for me, one of the things I've learned so much from black culture and, and black history is something about how to live with the worst kind of dukkha, the worst kind of uh, uh, bias, prejudice, racism, ignorance, and, and still survive as noble with a nobility and a beauty and an artistry and intelligence and a, and a holiness, for lack of a better word, that is inspiring, right? And so seeing the bodhisattva-like uh, um, lineage within black history, right? And the wisdom of people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks or Harriet Tub Tubman or George Washington Carver, or, you know, I, of course, I could just keep going on. I have so many names I wrote down thinking about people in Black history who've inspired me. And of course, in Buddhism, it's not just about suffering. It's about freedom and the love of freedom and the devotion to freedom in Black culture and that has struggled with freedom since the day it came to this country, you know, in 1619 you know, brought over on the, as slaves and that kind of hor horrific dukkha that never destroyed the hearts and minds, even though it killed thousands and thousands of people. And so I was reflecting on people who'd, who'd uh, inspired me and really, uh, um, help liberate my heart and mind in different ways. And of course I grew up and I remember, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his work, you know, and if you don't know who he is, which some people may not, right? He was a Baptist minister who led the civil rights movement, right? And uh, starting in 1955 with the Montgomery bus boycott, because of the way black people were treated on the buses. And uh, he just did so much. And that of course led to the very famous March on Washington where he gave the, I have a dream speech. And right, and the dream was all about the potential of all of us, of humans to be mature, to live together and to care for one another, all of us, black and white, men and women, and rich or poor, it didn't matter in his understanding, 
right? And he, he gave such a beautiful quote. He said, he said, all life is interrelated. Somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. He's just quite poetic too, right? All life is interrelated. Somehow we are we are in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. For some strange reason, I can never be but, but what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. And he's pointing at the, at the interconnectedness of all beings and that each being, whether it's recognized or not, what we think, feel, how we act, we all have an impact on the fabric of reality together. <clears throat> and a couple more quotes. He's, he was a big love guy, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. He, he talked about love as the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend, which is, which is such a profound and wise understanding of what's true. And so you hear the wisdom that comes from Martin Luther King Jr., and of course, he says this great line that I'll then repeat in a Buddhist version. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So that's Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, then the Buddha, who whether he knew it or not, he was echoing. The Buddha said in this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is, a, this is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. That's from the Buddha, right? Hatred never dispels hate. Only love dispels hate. And so you hear the wisdom, whether it's from the Buddha or Martin Luther King Jr. Or then there's just so many other people that are inspiring in black history. Right, Rosa Parks, right, who was, who was told by a bus driver to um, give up her seat in the quote colored section because there weren't enough seats in the white section of the bus for uh, all the white people sit down. So she had to go stand, even though she was already in the colored section, which is not a word we use much anymore, but that was a word that was used in the 50s. Right. And so uh, and she refused and she got arrested for it. Right. And um, and she, um, you know, she inspired Martin Luther King by that action to to start the Montgomery bus boycott. And to this day, she said, here, here's her. You hear her beautiful heartfulness and wisdom and love. She said, to this day, I believe we are here on earth to live, grow, and do what we can to make this world a better place for all people to enjoy freedom. Now, of course, I, I, I hope we all have that wish, 
that we all have the wish we can, in whatever little way or big way or little way, because little ways are fine, do what we can to make the world a better place for all people to enjoy freedom. Or in my words, to wake up and discover who and what they are. Hmm. Or George Washington Carver, who was a very famous scientist, right? Developed hundreds of products using previously unloved crops, such as peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans, right? This is the guy who started tofu. Now that's a joke from Eugene. No, but I mean, but even that, that he was even knew about tofu and he was positive about it. Uh, I don't know exactly when George Washington Carver lived. I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember if he was in the 20th century or the 19th century. I'm not sure. Um, but, um, but it said... Uh, the inscription in his grave reads, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. I mean, again, it's a beautifully, as I understand it, Buddhist way to live a life is you make your offering, you give, you help, you serve in different ways, wherever you are, whoever you are. And of course, I had the really good fortune to live during the time when Malcolm X was alive. And Malcolm X was, uh, I think, just a brilliant and beautiful being who unfortunately got killed way too early. But in the short time he lived, he changed the world because he was not afraid of being real about the racism in America. And even as he matured in his understanding and his view kept changing. He kept fighting for freedom in the ways that he understood were good. And I just remember being a kid and I was, um, I was in New York doing radical political street theater and performed for people like the Black Panthers and uh, the Young Lords who were, who were a Puerto Rican kind of Black Panthers at that time, and and um, and but Malcolm X was he was just like you 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 listened when he spoke, whether you liked what he said or not, he was real and he wasn't afraid to be real. He and and it just kind of beautiful that way and speaking the truth. Here's a great quote from Malcolm X. He said, "We didn't land on Plymouth Rock." brothers and sisters. He said, we didn't land on, on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us, right? And so you hear the, the different real understanding that he had about what was true and what had happened for his people and for black people in this country. And this is from uh, James Turner, who is a director of the Africana studies at Cornell University. He said, Malcolm X was a brother you could believe. There was a sense that he was not in it for something. There was the, extra, there was the extraordinary thing about him that he was in it because of his commitment for liberation, for his commitment for liberation. 
And even, even Martin Luther King said, I always, he wrote this to, to Betty Shabazz, uh, Martin Luther King's, um, uh, excuse me, Malcolm X's wife after Martin Luther, after Malcolm X was killed. Uh, Martin Luther King wrote, he said, I, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt they had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and the root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesperson. No one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern for the problems we face. Yeah. And of course, when I think about black history also, I mean, I just have more and more people. I'm not gonna get to all of them, but I mean, again, politically Nelson Mandela, one of the great bodhisattvas of our time, if you had the good fortune to be aware of him or to be old enough to remember him being alive. And, you know, he, he had studied and become a lawyer in South Africa and became the first a head of state in South Africa, as it was, uh, it it um, it matured, it changed, it was freed from apartheid, right? And uh, and he was jailed for twenty seven years, jailed for twenty seven years because of his politics and his beliefs and his uh, commitment to freedom. And he never lost his humanity. That's it's one of the amazing, beautiful things. And I've said this before, I had the good fortune to visit South Africa many years ago and to visit our friends, Kitty Sar and Tanisra who lived there and to teach there. And, um, but also I went to Robben Island, which was the jail he was in uh, for so many years and, uh, and see his cell and where he lived. And just the, the, the power of that, of just even being there at his cell and seeing what he had to live with for 27 years. I mean, how many of us are just tired of COVID-19 and want to get out of our house more, right? Because, you know, we have our reactions and that's all normal. It's not bad, but it's not 27 years in a prison cell with guards that basically hate you and treat you like shit. And, and I can tell you all kinds of horrible stories that I'm not gonna tell you, but he never lost his humanity, right? And it took four years to negotiate the end of apartheid. And he, he you know, he won and he won in the general election and became a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And he said, he said this, he said, I never lose, I either win or I learn. And that's again, brilliant Dharma. We never lose, we, we, we never lose, we either win or we, we begin to learn more about what's needed, how to respond to what's difficult, what's uncomfortable, what's unskillful. Mm. Mm. He also said, "For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains. It's not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And so again, you hear the bodhisattva heart of someone like Nelson Mandela, right? It's not just for himself, but it's for everyone. 
And it's the same with Dharma practice. We practice to wake up and we practice to wake up for everyone. And so that every we can all wake up together. And of course, I've just been talking about people in politics and then the arts, right? Which also black history is just, for me is so amazing that people have been oppressed in this country specifically for 400 years have been so creative and so given so much heart and beauty and soul and love and, uh, uh, and magic through their, their who, who and what they are. And that history of, of the different, you know, people in the arts, whether they're writers or musicians or, or the athletic arts, right? Right. This is from James Baldwin, the writer. He said, love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know that we cannot live within. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know that we cannot live within. I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. And then I just have a whole list of musicians because of the brilliant and beautiful gift that black history has given us in the music that's mostly called jazz. And if you haven't seen the PBS documentary on jazz, I would really, really, really encourage you to see it. You learn so much about black history and about the, the, the gift that's come from black history for all of us and in this country. And it was given to the whole world and changed the whole world's music, right? Really, it's really the, original, it's an original music, jazz. And whether it's, you know, Louis Armstrong or Billy Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald or whoever it might be, or a lot of the people who I love, all of those people. And then also people like John Coltrane or Charlie Mingus or Annette Coleman, Eric Dolphy, Cecil Taylor. Charlie Mingus was so creative. He used to play the music and then he wrote a book. The book was called Beneath the Underdog, which was always just so very Charlie Mingus. He wasn't afraid to be real about stuff. Hmm. And I think I'll end with the quote from Sojourner Truth, who was a woman who'd been a slave. She said, I am 80 years old. It is about time for me to be going, to, to be dying, she's saying, right? I have been here 40 years a slave. And then she escaped in 40 years, she was free. And it would take at least 40 more years to have equal rights for all. And of course, that was more than 100 years ago. And we're still working to have equal rights for everybody. Mm. 
And then I'll end with a Buddhist quote from the Dalai Lama. He says, each of us has a responsibility for all of humankind. All of us have, each of us has a responsibility for all humankind. It is time for us to think of other people as true brothers and sisters and to be concerned with their welfare, with lessening their suffering. And it's a beautiful part of practice in whatever little way we can even first just think that way or reflect that way and start to live that way and see how can we help in whatever way possible. So those are a few of my thoughts about black history. I would love to hear from you. Please raise your hand. Um, yeah, you could, uh, some people it's in the reactions, some people it's in the participants button and Sarah's raised her hand. So please unmute yourself, Sarah. Hi, can I, you hear me? I can, I wanna see you. So I'm okay. gonna, all right. Speaker view, there you are. Hi. Oh, hi, um, this is, a, it was a perfect topic cause I, I was here last week and Devin, the guest speaker was, was yeah. Devin and, yeah. um, Love Devin. Great. Yeah, it was great. And she spent a lot of time talking about her social, how did she call it? Her social position and, and really kind of talking about um, basically kind of, you know, I think she was saying identifying her social position in so far as, uh, you know, race and privilege. And, um, and um, I am in a uh, uh, white identity group. And it's, I forget which sangha is, it's either through this one or, or Howie's Tuesday sangha, but it's, I'm kind of in the middle of this eight month program. And right. I, I just, I, I wish nobody really acknowledged. I just wanted to say nobody, I was so touched by how she handled that kind of dealing with her privilege, because of course, you know, one of the things that's coming up as I'm in the middle of this program is like how, how this stuff is so uncomfortable to talk about, especially if you're not talking about it with the people. It's one thing to talk about it with the people in your group, but how do you talk about it outside of the other people in your group? Right. And um, so I wish that I had said something and really it said to her, you know, I really appreciate you saying that. And she really modeled for me, you know, kind of a way to do this. And, and so um, anyway, I'm just, I'm happy to be able to, you know, to kind of, um, you know, build on top of what, what you're saying and, and kind of, you know, cause I mean, that's such a, you know, I think my big learning in that program is like, I had no idea how much privilege that I had, you know, how much, how much I got because other people didn't get, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, how much racism is just so deeply embedded in our society. So, um, so yeah, it's really uncomfortable and to yeah. deal with. It's actually really great to deal with it because it's true. Mm -hmm. Remember, Dharma means truth, mm. right? And we're learning about the truth. And the truth is said, I believe in the Christian tradition, will set you free. Mm. And it's really, and so it's, for me, it's not, and I've been in these worlds for a long time now around race and diversity and, and whiteness. And um, it's so freeing not to pretend right doesn't mean it's comfortable mm -hmm. freedom doesn't mean comfortable it means free 
And that's also often a confusion we make. We, we all want to be comfortable because that's the American way. If you buy the right product, you're going to feel good, right? And, but in fact, what we're looking for is what does it mean to be free and to be free together? Mm. Because being free alone doesn't actually work. Right. And so I'm glad you're in the program. And I, um, you know, it, and I'm, I'm, I was going to say, I'm sorry, it's uncomfortable, but I'm not sorry because of course it is uncomfortable. Yeah. And, but it's so good because your freedom adds to everyone's freedom. Mm-hmm. And then the talking about it with other people, that's skillful means. And it depends who you're talking about, when you're talking about it, where are you talking about it, meaning, what what would be helpful at this moment? Is it helpful to have the full truth or part of the truth or actually not to say anything? Because it just depends. And so it, it's not a script, like here's the bullet points and here's what you do. But it's why mindfulness is so important because the more we're here, then we can respond to reality whatever the actual reality is in the moment. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for jumping on board. Uh, okay. I want to do one other thing. And then I'll, oh. I know. Okay. Sarah, you're, you spoke now. Patricia, please. Hi, Eugene. Hi. Um, I just want to know the name of the book that you got the Martin Luther King quote from, and if you could read it again for me, please. Which which quote? Well, the Martin Luther King, all life is, is interwoven and it's something- It's interrelated, yeah. I don't know where I got it. Uh, here, here's the trick that I know. Here's the first sentence. All life is interrelated. Wait, my pen just ran out of ink. Yeah, take your time. We're meditators. We can go slow. (laughs) (laughs) Interrelated. Yeah, interrelated. Somehow we're caught in an inescapable network. And then, and then, Google that with Martin Luther King Jr. and you'll okay. get the whole quote. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That's all thank I wanted. Thank you. Sure. You're welcome. Bhavani. Hi, Bhavani. Can you unmute, Bhavani? It helps if you unmute. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for this great topic. And, and it's nice. it was wonderful to hear, hear your you know, thoughts about it. Um, and something that and, and oh, Sarah, I wanted to mention, too, I, I did the uh, that white affinity group session, too. And I learned so much from doing that. And and so I, you know, I. I kind of, my heart goes out to you as you're going through that and, and the growth and the challenges and all that. But um, I also wanted to just ask you, Eugene, I, um, since I've been on my journey around the issues of 
you know, race and equality. And, and as you know, I work in the criminal justice system and I still do, which is still crazy. But anyway, um, I, I've, I'm so, there's a part of me that's really angry about how our U.S. American history is written and excludes so much history from other other groups, you know, whether it's African Americans or indigenous folks or, you know, or, you know, any, any of the, it's always written through the Eurocentric, you know, lens. And, and it makes me so angry. And anyway, I just keep allowing the anger and feel the energy of the anger because the energy of the anger will keep clarifying and uh, sharpening what to do. And I'm not saying act from the anger, but let the energy keep bringing that Vajra sword-like energy forward because we need to cut through the bullshit. Yeah. And that needs to be done. Sometimes it's, it's a kind cutting through the bullshit and sometimes it's fierce, but it depends on the situation. But you're saying something that's really important about the ignorance that all of us have because of how we're inculcated with a certain perspective that we don't know as a perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, and of course, history, oh, yeah, this is history as if it's the truth. And, you know, it's partly the truth. It's one person's version of history. Right. And that's why what you're talking about, like indigenous history or black history or or whatever segment of the history we want to we want to include all the history and see what's our collective history. Maybe part of that anger is has actually inspired me to just read more on my own and uh, and explore more on my own. Absolutely. We don't. You know, anyway. Yeah, no, no, that's great because then you become the living history, right? Remember what the word means that I said at the beginning, right? It means learned or wise person. There's a wisdom that comes when you, like, like I've probably learned more about black history, formal black history in the last 20 some years, 25 years. And when that started happening, it's like, oh, everything opened for me. My whole understanding of reality opened. And even the the whole, my own um, racism started to, you know, get holes poked in it because I hadn't been aware of what was true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it really, great. Mm. Nice, nice, nice to see you, Bhavani. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Lloyd Rath. Lloyd? Yes. Here I am. Oh, there you are. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Lloyd. Okay, so I just, this, you know, growing up, I grew up in a, in a white community, didn't really have any friends of color, uh-huh. um, but when I was a little, when I was like a little boy, when I was 12 years old, my dad 
helped me get a job on a Honduran flag freighter that ran from Miami down to Puerto Barrios and Puerto Cortez. And except for the captain and the chief engineer, everybody on the crew was black. And they were from the islands east of Honduras called Guanaja and Rotan. And the crew was so kind to me. And when we would be in the Central American ports, they would take me with them. I was just part of their family. At night, we'd sit out on deck and and they really made me feel like they made, they made me very, very welcome. But for me, it was a shock when the ship would get to Miami because then they would try to nicely explain to me how we couldn't go together to mm. these places. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like if we near where the ship docked, there was a little restaurant and they had to point out that they had to go into the back while I could go into the front, Mm -hmm. you know, and it it didn't make any sense to me, but I just, that's what, that's what I did. And that's what we did. And later as I grew up, I realized that at that time in Miami, there was a a lot of segregation. There was one black beach. Mm -hmm. Uh, The restaurants had separate entrances and, and the thing that brought it home to me was that that these were my friends, that these people who treated me so wonderfully, mm-hmm. they couldn't go into the same restaurant in Miami as I could, and they couldn't swim at the same beach that I could swim in. It was, yeah, it was really a shock to, to understand that these weren't some abstract things. These were people who were so kind and so accepting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, anyway. just it's what happens when uh, a, a child with that kind of innocence comes up against uh, ignorance, racism, prejudice, bias. I don't even know the right words. I, you know, it's just I- insane, really, at a certain level. It's insane, even what happened, the whole you know, 400 years of racism in this country is in totally insane. And, and it's, it, it's not understandable on a certain level, except that human beings are slow at maturing. You know, they, they also helped inspire me. Eventually I became, I went to the Merchant Marine Academy and I became captain of a ship and that's how I spent my career. And I feel like they they played a big part of that. And also, mm-hmm. since a young man, I, I've been tried to be involved in political causes to help people who were held down. Oh, and so less advantaged than you, less privileged than yeah. you in that way. Yeah. So I'm yeah. very yeah. thankful to those men. And um, they had a great influence in my life. Yeah, thank you, Lloyd. Thank you. Okay, Brian, please unmute yourself. Uh, Hi, Eugene and everyone, I'm Brian. Um, uh, Eugene, I also grew up in Detroit. I remember I shared that with you after a a meeting one night um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, did you tell me what, what part of Detroit you grew up in? Um, Royal Oak, which was Lily White. Yeah, and is not Detroit. 
now. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to acknowledge my uh, my lineage of actually growing up in Detroit, but Royal Oak is nice enough and all that. But so, okay, thank you. Yeah, and so um, you know, it was a white neighborhood, a white city, and sure. um, but there was this sense of otherness towards black people and. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to shake that after I moved to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I did kind of need to leave that environment to to shake it as an adult. And what I wanted to ask is, um, you know, about this sense of otherness mm -hmm. that 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 Black people are are different and and they are the other, and how today we've got the problem of otherness between blue states and red states. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have any thoughts on how otherness is, is, is a problem in society that, and how it could be addressed? And, um, you know, particularly with um, the idea that Republicans and Democrats, they're not your, your opponent, they're your enemies and they must be destroyed because they are, they are the other. Yeah. Because so you I'm afraid that that's where we are right now. Yeah, it's part of the terrain of humanity that um, uh, people tend to other other people. And it's really, um, really sad. Is, the, is really my basic response. It's just tragic. And yet um, we're all dealing with it. And even now you say what to do. Part of what we're do, even doing this is what we're doing about it is we keep learning about it, waking up to it and seeing how we can uh, support the, the dissolution of otherness and see what's really true because there are no other it's all us right it's all us whether we like the other people or not it's still all us right and so that that's also a a different kind of um you know i don't like everybody right but i don't not like them because they're other i have my reasons which often i think make sense right why i don't like somebody but even once I get to know almost anybody, it's not, it's not either, either I like them or I see their suffering and I have compassion for them. And the people who are othering are suffering. And so that's one basic uh, lens to look through. How are they suffering and why are they othering somebody else? And it's because they're suffering in some way, shape or form, in, in my view. And you should look for yourself and see. I mean, and the Democrats and Republicans, uh, yeah, I mean, it's totally wild that people in uh, you know, a democratic country think that we're not all equal in some way. I mean, that's just, it's not how democracy works in my understanding. We're all here together and we can disagree, but, but we're still all here together. And so I don't have any easy answer, you know, uh, 
I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I'm curious to see what will happen uh, in terms of uh, this country. Because I remember, like, I'm old enough. When I grew up, I remember probably the first president I remember is Dwight D. Eisenhower, right, who was a Republican. And of course, he was not a bad guy at all. He was the guy who actually talked about the um, military industrial complex for the first time. And he'd been a general in World War II and a successful general. And so he, but he was a person. And now people seem to be negating the personness of the other, right? And of course, they've done that in racism forever. Right. But now, even between white people, which a lot of Democrats and Republicans are white people, right, they keep negating the humanness that's there. And why? Do, then the question is, and there's a basketball player, I kind of remember his name. Shoot. He's on with Shaq and Charles Barkley and Kenny, Kenny the Jet Smith, Kenny the Jet Smith, he said a great, when he saw what happened in Washington, like, you know, Sha Shaquille O'Neal and, and um, Charles Barkley were both furious about what happened. But he, he was like, no, I'm, I can't, I'm trying to understand what happened. That's what he said. And these people did that for a reason because they lost and they can't tolerate losing their supposed power. And I thought that was a really wise view because he took the view of looking at the causes and conditions. And so that's partly what I'm suggesting to you. I'm mimicking, you know, Kenny the Jet Smith and saying, oh yeah, look at the causes and conditions. That's where understanding comes from. And see, why are, why are, you know, Republicans, Democrats, or whatever, whatever the situation might be, you know, black, white, men, women, what, whatever the different configurations of where ignorance manifests itself. Why? What's happening? What's the suffering that's not being seen or dealt with in a skillful and kind way? Does that make some sense? Great. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to have somebody from Detroit, even if they're from Royal Oak. <laughs> good, good to have you here. Okay, Eileen, please unmute yourself, Eileen. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having this topic. Um, I just wanted to comment on Sarah and Bhavani just to say that, yes, it's totally uncomfortable. It's never... It's never a comfortable topic. And I feel the same, maybe not outrage, maybe minus more frustration that I didn't get any of this education in school. And, you know, the amount of time that I'm spending in my adulthood studying <laughs> to unpack my conditioning is, is crazy. It's crazy. And, um, I, this is like my little public service announcement here, just to say that if you've managed to get to the age of, if you're white identified, I just want to say that particularly, if not everybody here is white identified, mm -hmm. but if you're white identified and you've gotten to the age of 40, 
or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or whatever, and you haven't looked at your white conditioning, the time is up and get your shit done. Start signing up for a program and start reading your books and get involved because it has rippling effects in every aspect of your life, especially if you are a white cisgendered male. And I'm just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna leave it at that too. <laughs> Thank you, Eileen. And last, last comment question, Jeff. Um, hi, Eugene. Thank you for the topic tonight. Um, it kind of, you know, I'm taking um, part of my practice is to is to wake up. I've got some doggies here that are trying to talk to me. Um, okay. And and so that's part of my part is 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 doing that. Um, my father was um, uh, born in 1912. And, and I live in northern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And to put 1912 in perspective, New Mexico was still a territory in the United States mm -hmm. in 1912 and just became a state when mm -hmm. my father was born. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was an Alabama cotton farmer who moved to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And so all my family on my father's side were cotton farmers growing up uh, in, a, in a big home. There were like eight brothers, three sisters that lived on this cotton farm. And, uh, and they ended up going through the Dust Bowl days. And they were on their way to California and stopped in Albuquerque, New Mexico on the way. And they set up shop there. That's where they kind of lived. And that's where I was born. So I grew up in New Mexico. Now, you know, do you think my uncles and my whole family growing up from uh, in Oklahoma uh, on a cotton farm may have had some prejudice and racism. You bet your ass they did. And, and I'm the first generation off of that. You think I've got some racism that I need to deal with? You bet your ass I do. And so part of my work is to wake up to that as the, whoever it was that was speaking earlier, you know, and, and I remember, you know, a while back, um, you know, when um, it was um, um, when George, when the George Floyd incident happened, you know, I was I was thinking, you know, wait a minute. You know, we've come, you know, after Obama, I was thinking we've come so much further. We are so much better off. And and I'm wrong. I'm I discovered I'm wrong about that because it's still out there in all its glory. And um and there's so much more work that needs to be done about it all. And um, so part of my work is to wake up to that, wake up to my family's history and to be, and to get off my ass and be with it. Thanks. Wait, 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 thank you. That was all great to hear and very powerful. And it's true, it's, it is our work. And the fact that we're even talking about it as our work is a difference from, from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago. It's different. 
And so there is movement that happens. It's slow, the movement. And I'm not defending it as slow. I'm just trying to say what's true. So we can be kind about the trueness of that. And of course, kind doesn't mean we want it to go slow or we're not gonna be fierce at times about it because sometimes it's a fierce kindness that's needed, right? But, but the, um, the understanding and seeing the bigger perspective is an important part of Buddhist practice that allows us to relax even when we're furious about bullshit. So thank you, Eugene. Thank you. Okay, we'll just take a moment and offer our good wishes. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to gallery view. Great. Offer our good wishes for everyone. Um, yeah, may we all wake up. May, may Black History wake us all up so we can all be free together. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings, whatever color, whatever shape, whatever gender, whatever age, whatever economic status, whatever educational status, whatever world we live in, may all beings wake up and be free May we wake up together. Thank you, everybody. Good to be with you. I think I'm not here next week. Pamela Weiss is here next week. I think I'm here in two weeks. So I'll see you then. Okay. Take Good care. to see you, Eugene. Thank you for teaching. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.